Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Hello, Warbirders. If you enjoy the program and it fills a part of your day, please consider supporting it through the World of Warbirds Patreon. There are advantages to being a patron of the podcast, such as getting the episodes a week earlier, getting bonus materials, and better access for feedback and suggestions, and you'll have the satisfaction of helping to contribute to the podcast. If you are presently listening to this through Patreon, well, thank you for your support. Now on to today's show. Introduction This episode is a first. No, not the first in a series, but a first in that it is not coming from a recommendation or suggestion, but it's based on one particular listener's utter disdain, and yes, even hate for the aircraft. I don't think I've ever read such passionate words on any aircraft, positive or negative, than I have with this listener on this type. The creative vitriol extends to her suggesting that the 189 was actually the illegitimate wartime love child of an illicit coupling between a P-61 and the Italian SM-91, or that it was a P-38 Lightning that was squished somehow to be egg-shaped and deformed. This listener has a very active imagination at times. Why the prejudice? It seems to stem from the fact that Kurt Tank and Fucker Wolf produced such beautiful and powerful and deadly aircraft that the weird-looking 189 just doesn't seem to belong in the family. Let's take a look at this aircraft and see if it is worthy of all the abuse. Design Competition In 1937, the German Ministry of Aviation issued a request for a short-range, three-seat reconnaissance aircraft to support the German army in the field. At the time, the newly released Henschel HS-126 was performing this duty, as well as the liaison role, but the thinking seems to have been that two very specialized aircraft would perform better these roles with the short takeoff or landing Fiesler FI-156 Storch taking on the liaison role, and the other aircraft picking up the recon duties. Excellent all-round visibility was supreme priority. Both Focke-Wulf and Arado were tapped to come up with designs. Initially, Arado's proposal, which was called the AR-198, was considered the more interesting one. It was an all-metal, shoulder-winged, single-engined aircraft that used a BMW radial for power. It solved the visibility challenge by having the pilot way up high in the front, giving a great view forward and a glazed dorsal area to look to the rear, although the tail fin would have been in the way. For looking below, the AR-198 had a kind of glazed pod built into the belly. It is funny looking and does kind of look like the aircraft is about eight months pregnant. There was to be a crew of three, including the pilot and two observers who would also act as gunners if needed. For armament, it had one fixed forward firing MG-17 machine gun and two flexibly mounted MG-15s at the dorsal and ventral positions. 
It would also be able to carry four 110-pound bombs on underwing racks. Sounds pretty good, right? In March 1938, the prototype AR-198 took off on its maiden flight, and the results are kind of humorous. It was reported that the test flight proved generally satisfactory, except for flight instability in all axes during low-speed flight. For an aircraft that was probably going to operate much of the time in this flight mode, this is a little like saying that the swimmer did very well, except for drowning. Arado tinkered with the wing, added automatic slats to help out with the low-speed flight, but the prototype was still difficult to handle. When the point of the aircraft is to observe and report, you really don't want the pilot, who is one-third of the crew, to be so engaged with just keeping the machine airborne. So the Arado AR-198 project was terminated in late 1938. So let's see what Fucka Wolf came up with. Kurt Tank would solve the visibility request by making the crew compartment one big, very glazed pod with a stepless cockpit in the front, leading back to a fully glazed tail cone in the rear. In terms of attractiveness, stepless cockpits, meaning that there is no separate windshield for the pilot, are probably not as pretty as stepped cockpits. I mean, the B-17 nose is just more attractive than the B-29 or HE-111. Anyway, that's just what I think, and this is a thing that people can argue about. But I think you'd have to admit that the 189's boxy nose, if you can call it a nose, was very functional, with great visibility, but not that pretty. To get the engines, props, and tail out of the way for the all-important visibility requirement, Tank chose two Argus AS410 engines and placed them out on the wings connected to two twin booms that led to the P-38 type twin tail. The Argus AS410 was an air-cooled inverted V-12 engine and was a bigger brother to the engine used in the FI Storch. For weapons, the 189 had two forward-firing MG-17 machine guns mounted in the wing roots, and one MG-15 mounted in the dorsal position, and another in the rear cone. It could also carry four 110-pound bombs under the wings. Prototypes and Production The FW-189 first flew in 1938 and remained in production until 1944. Almost 900 of them were built by Fuckerwolf in Bremen and also at the Bordeaux-Merignac factory in occupied France and in Prague-occupied Czechoslovakia. Operational History The Fuckerwolf FW-189 had several nicknames. The German army called it the Fliegende Auge or the Flying Eye. The Soviets called it the Rama, which means frame in Russian, and describes its open, angular look, if seen from the ground. But my favorite nickname is Uhu, which is the name of a species of bird called the Eagle Owl. It makes sense because this is an observation aircraft. You know, think about the big eyes of an owl, right? I also like that the name of the bird actually sounds like the call of the owl. Uhu. Say it with me. 
Anyway, the 189 operated extensively in the Eastern Front. Although it certainly doesn't look that strong, supposedly it was and proved to be very reliable in the field. Its undercarriage was built tough with the knowledge that it would be using improvised airstrips close to the front. The wings and undersides of the aircraft were armored and very sturdy. There are tales of this thing coming back with one tail boom shot away. A very handy feature in this situation is that the tail booms were identical and interchangeable, meaning that the mechanics wouldn't have the hassle of having to look for a right one or a left one. Even though it does not look like it could survive 10 minutes in a combat environment, reportedly the Uhu's superior maneuverability made it a very difficult target to draw a bead on. It could outturn attacking fighters by flying in a very tight circle where enemy fighters could not follow while spraying defensive fire out from its various gun positions. There were several variants of the FW-189. As usual, for service in North Africa, there was a tropical model with filters over the air intakes to prevent sand and dust from clogging its engines. The A-2 model upgunned the defenses to the faster-firing MG-81. There were trainer versions with five seats. Not simply content to observe and report, one Eagle Owl version had sharpened claws in the guise of two 20mm autocannons placed in its wing roots for ground attack, and was given extra armor protection for its engines, undersides, and fuel tanks. Near the end of the war, some were even modified for the night fighter role, having their reconnaissance equipment pulled out and airborne interception radar installed in the nose. Back in the rear compartment, a single, obliquely fired 20mm autocannon, Schraga Music, was fitted. In 1944, the Red Army Flight Research Institute published a book on the results of their research and testing of various German aircraft including the 189. What did this hard-nosed outfit think of the Uhu? I'm going to read the translated report verbatim. Open quotes. The aircraft's excellent visibility cuts down on the possibility of surprise fighter attacks. Its high maneuverability allows gunners to prepare to beat off an attack only if the attacking aircraft is detected in time. In combat turns, the fighter will always be in the field of fire of its rear guns. The FW-189 can bank at speeds of 180 to 200 kilometers per hour. The maneuver FW-189 crews commonly use to break off combat is to descend in a spiral to low altitudes and remain there hedge hopping. Close quotes. Other details in the report noted the crew comforts provided, the carefully thought-out arrangement of navigation equipment and radios, the side-by-side seating of navigator and pilot, which made their work easier without having to resort to an intercom, and the efficient cockpit heating. The aircraft could also perform light bombing missions, and it turned out to be very easy to put onto a target. When the Soviets liked an enemy airplane, they were known to copy it and their version of the Uhu was the Su-12 aircraft. Pilots and Survivors On the 4th of May, 1943, at Pont Selayoki, I apologize for the pronunciation, but I have no idea, 
On the edge of the Arctic Circle, near the Finnish-Russian border, Uhu V-71H prepared for a photo reconnaissance mission. Lothar Mothes was the pilot, Kurt Labrecht was the observer mid-upper gunner, and Gunther Albrecht was the rear gunner. At about three in the morning, the pilot, Mothes, pushed the throttles of their FW-189 forward and they took off. Their mission was to photograph the Luki-3 airbase from 20,000 feet and then continue north up the Murmansk-Leningrad railway. At this point, I'm going to read the account written up in the Avbuyers magazine, 28th of January, 2022 article entitled Fuckawolf FW-189, The Owl Left in the Woods. The link is in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. At exactly 3.37 hours, 31 minutes into the flight, a radio message was received at their base to say that after arriving over Luki, they were under heavy attack by enemy fighters. Russian Hurricanes. This was the last radio message received from the aircraft. Both the gunners were wounded during the air-to-air combat. The aircraft made a forced landing and struck the tops of trees before finally stopping, elevated in the canopy of the forest, at which point it dropped down and backwards, dislodging the tail booms before finally coming to a rest upside down in the middle of a densely wooded area. Labrecht and Albrecht died as a result of their wounds, whereas Mothes survived after the landing. Mothes hid behind Russian lines for two weeks, living off grubs he found behind bark on the trees. He was eventually spotted and rescued by German soldiers. He spent nine months in hospital and convalescing as a result of the crash. But Mothes made a full recovery and returned to his duties as a pilot, flying a further 100 missions in FW-189s. Mothes survived the war and in later years worked as an architect in Germany. Following extensive research about the aircraft, he was located and invited to the UK during a large air show in 1996 to be reunited with the aircraft some 53 years since he left it. His visit caused total silence amongst the surrounding crowd, and he looked rather emotional as he surveyed the condition of the aircraft, undoubtedly remembering his fallen crewmates. He took a moment to compose himself, walked up to the cockpit, and, leaning in, he placed his hands on the throttles and commented, Just where I left them. Close quotes. The aircraft is presently at the Aircraft Restoration Company, Arco, at Duxford, and is now at an advanced stage of restoration. At some point, it will be for sale, and the future owner will have to choose whether to keep the aircraft in a static condition, or even to return it to airworthy status. It's the only one of its kind in any condition. It would be a gem to have in your collection if you have spare millions kicking around. And if you do, have you considered supporting the podcast? So, my dear listener... What is our verdict on the 189? It wasn't fast, or powerful, or particularly deadly. But we do have to admit that it did exactly what it was designed to do, and it did it well. It had its place in the World War II airborne battlefield. 
I am put in mind of the Celtic Thunder song, A Place in the Choir, whose lyrics read, All God's creatures got a place in the choir. Some sing low and some sing higher. Some sing out loud on a telephone wire, and some just clap their hands or paws or anything they got now. Thanks again to all who support the podcast, either via PayPal at WOWB17 or through Patreon. I appreciate it more than you know. You can check out some photos of what we've been talking about on the Patreon page. These are available to all for free. Until next time.